Well, if you paid attention to the news feed this week, you might have seen that uh, Russia is entering its second year of war uh, in the Ukraine. A year ago this last week, uh, Russia invaded. Uh, and so that doesn't uh, show any signs of slowing down. Um, you may have seen uh, more balloons making the headlines and uh, whether or not those balloons are of uh, Chinese spy origin or whether they came from Hobby Lobby, we're not completely sure. But what we do know uh, is that there isn't peace on earth. We know that, right? There is not peace on earth. Uh, what's it going to take? Well, what will it require for us to have peace on earth? Does peace require bloodshed? That's the question to begin with this morning. Can peace only be had through the taking of life? That seems to be humanity's answer. And we look at the course of of human history and we see uh, the the, the altar of bloodshed that war has become. And life upon life. If, If the blood that is shed could be measured in gallons, how many seas would it fill? What is the answer to peace? Um, maybe to, a little bit of history for you this morning. Um, we've had 46 presidents uh, in the United States. We have 46 uh, different presidents. Eight of those have died while in office. Now, um, you, you know how it goes. If a president dies while in office, the vice president uh, assumes that, that role. And this is never desirable, but the, the worst possible time that this could happen would be during a time of war. Well, on April 12th, 1945... Uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt suffered a massive brain hemorrhage and died. And uh, Harry Truman, who had been vice president only for 82 days, becomes the next president of the United States. Now, the war uh, in in Europe was coming to an end. Uh, Germany would surrender 26 days later, I believe. Uh, But the war in, uh, in the Pacific, the war with Japan, still uh, w- was going on. And uh, the Japanese were showing uh, signs that they, they would fight to the last man. And that was demonstrated through kamikaze pilots. It was demonstrated in places like Iwo Jima, where though, though there were mass amounts of casualties, the Japanese would prefer to fall on their swords rather than surrender. Now, when Germany surrendered, uh, Truman's generals, like Eisenhower, wanted to push for an invasion of Japan like they had invaded Europe. And they began to do the numbers. And what would it take to invade Japan uh, the way that, that, that we'd invade, like, France and Normandy? And they were looking at the, at the potential cost of fighting an enemy that would fight the last man. And, and they projected somewhere in the neighborhood of 500,000 casualties. Half a million people potentially would lose their lives between the Allies. Tremendous cost of life. But... There was another option. Uh, when Truman uh, became president, he was brought into this, this circle, this secret plan called the Manhattan Project, something he'd never heard of before. Uh, but this was um, our, uh, our, our attempt to build a weapon of mass destruction called the atomic bomb. And he was told that the potential loss of life, if, if we dropped the bomb rather than invading Japan, it would cost mostly civilian lives but tens of thousands. Now, you know the history, and you know the path that Truman took. Just 113 days after becoming president, the order was given, and the the bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. 
Three days later, another one was dropped on Nagasaki, and within a couple of weeks, Japan completely surrendered. But the hope was this. One powerful weapon, one destructive, all-powerful weapon could make peace. And it worked in the short term. The, the war uh, in, in the Pacific, it ended. There was peace. World War II came to an end. Yet you and I both know that wasn't the last war that we fought, was it? And we know that when we dropped that bomb, we entered into a new age of warfare, more destructive than any that has proceeded before. That it's not only us who has these weapons, but our allies and our enemies. And there's such a prolific amount of these weapons that if someone should let one off the chain, all the other nations might follow suit. And the massive, massive amount of destruction that that would bring. This is human wisdom. Peace through bigger and deadlier weapons. What's been the result? The question is, uh, really, when it, when it comes down to it, if, if, if human bloodshed, if human life, costly as it is, if it's not enough to secure peace, lasting peace, what is there that will? Is there another blood? Is there a, a more infinite, an infinitely perfect blood that could be shed in order to purchase an infinite, eternal peace? Of course, we as Christians know the answer to that. As Christians, we believe that all war between human beings really originates with our war with God. That in the beginning, we were, we were created to be with him, but we rejected him, we rebelled against him. We talked about this last week, that, that if he is the source of all life and light and love and we disconnect from him, then aren't we choosing death and hate and darkness? We became God's enemies. In order for us to have peace with one another, we first have to have peace with God. And that's what Jesus came to do. We talk about this as Christians a lot what it means to be saved. To be saved. What does it mean to you to be saved? Do you know what it is that you're saved from? We've been saved from the wrath of God. That's what we've been saved from. And you, you wonder, how could God be angry? Well, if you were alive when 9-11 happened, were you angry? Right? People's response to Pearl Harbor, anger, to being attacked. This is what we've done to God, infinitely more so. He has the right to be angry. And because of that, that wrath, we are, we're, we're in the path of destruction. And Jesus comes and he stands between us and God and he absorbs the wrath of God that we deserve. His blood shed. One man's blood shed to bring peace for all humanity with God. A better more perfect, infinitely more perfect blood that will bring an infinite supply of eternal peace. So we're in Luke 19 this morning. If you would, you could turn there. We're going to start in verse 28. We're going to work through the rest of the chapter. And if you've been following along in the series last week, uh, we ended uh, Jesus' final leg of Jesus' final journey. 
All right? It's a journey that be, began way back in Luke chapter 9, uh, where, where it says this, that uh, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. The journey began right there in Luke 9, and, and he's going to Jerusalem. Why is he going to Jerusalem? He said it in verse 22, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. You know, very few of us know what it's like to live our whole lives with one destiny and with one plan and one purpose the way that Jesus did. From the moment of his birth, he was headed in this direction. He was going to this place. He was headed to Jerusalem for this purpose. And it's not just that 30 years of life that he lived. As the son of God who has reigned for all eternity with God the Father, this has been the plan since the beginning. All of scripture is leading up to this moment. Everything. This is the climax of it all. Jesus setting his face to go to Jerusalem in order to, to offer his life as a sacrifice. And so we saw last week that that, that journey concludes. Well, before we pick it up this morning, I want to remind us of what we, we heard the angels say when Jesus was born. From Luke 2.14, 2, it says, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace. Peace will be the result. That he is the Messiah, that he's the Christ, that he's the king, the son of man that's come. This has already been established in Luke. He is the king of our salvation, and he's the one who's come to make peace. And so we're gonna see three things this morning in the, in the passage as we work through it. First, we're gonna see the, the king of righteous come riding an animal of peace. Secondly, we're gonna see this king of salvation come to the city of peace. And thirdly, we're going to see this king of righteous come to the house of peace or the house of prayer. And so let's begin. Will you look with me? Uh, Luke 19, beginning in verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is a, um, a, a powerful piece of scripture that is completely rich with symbolism. There, there's so many images in here. This is why it's important that we read our whole Bibles, that we, we have an understanding of all of what God's word says because it's actually one story. This is the climax that we're reaching, but it's actually one story. And so all of the elements that are in it are beautiful and powerful and important. And here Jesus, or, or, through this, this, this account, or Luke, is, he, he's, he's pointing to all of these images, many of them from the Old Testament. 
and he's drawing our attention to them. And it begins in Genesis chapter 49. In that passage, um, there's an individual named Jacob, and he's dying. He's the grandson of Abraham, the great patriarch, but he's the grandson of, of Abraham, and he has 12 sons, and each of these 12 sons are going to become a tribe of Israel. And he calls each one of these sons to him and he prophesies over them. There's this prophetic blessing and he tells them what kind of people they're going to become, what kind of uh, of tribes are are gonna come forth from them and what, what will be significant or characteristic about each one of them. And he calls his son Judah to him. And one of the first thing he says to him is that the scepter will not part from you. In other words, this is a kingly image that this will be the tribe from which kings come from. There's this kingly image there. That's why uh, when Luke is recounting this story, he makes sure to include Jesus' genealogy. Right? He's from the line of David. David came 600 years after Jacob, the, the greatest king of Israel who God promised there would always be a king of his line sitting on the throne. That's what Jesus comes from. Now, it, it, there's, this, there's this, the picture of a scepter here, this kingly thing. But then it says this in verse 11. It says, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. There's two images really here. The first is that of a colt of a donkey. A young donkey, this is an unbroken, unridden donkey, and it's tied up. It's tied up to a vine, a a grape vine. And the second image there is, is someone whose clothing is saturated in grape juice, or what the author calls the blood of grapes. And, and probably many of you already know that, that, that wine is a powerful symbol in Scripture. We're going to take communion here in a little bit later. We use grape juice, but you know the point. What does that point to? What does is, what is that little bit of juice in that little cup symbolize for us? There we go. All right. All right. Yeah, but blood. Blood. There's this powerful image here, right? Of, of somebody whose clothing is, is soaked in blood. Now, uh, this image actually connects, it's something at the beginning of Scripture, it connects to something at the end of Scripture in Revelation 19. And we read this. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings, Lord of lords. Do you see kings there? Kingship, authority, right? Do you, do you see blood there? A lot of it, right? Do you, do, do you see there's an animal connection there? Only in Genesis 49, the animal is a, a donkey. In Revelation 19, the animal is a war horse. In, in scripture, uh, kings rode both animals. They would, wear, they would uh, ride a, a donkey or a colt of a donkey, a young donkey, to their coronation. R- riding into the midst of their people who would make them king, they ride towards their people in peace and made king. However, when it's a time of war, they ride out from their people towards their enemy on a horse. Kings rode both. What is Jesus riding in Luke 19? He's riding a colt of a donkey. 
not a war horse. One of the other things that we see here is in, in Genesis 49 is there's this word tied, um, this word bind. The Greek equivalent in Luke 19 is, is listed five times. In other words, Luke is saying, uh, underline this, highlight this, circle this. He's using it five times. This is significant. Five times this word is used. And, and, and it has a lots of meaning and uses in the New Testament, but, but two are really powerful. The, the first one is this word tie or bind is used in marriage for the way that a man and a woman are bound together to one another. The second way that it's used is in uh, the, the way that uh, linen cloths were wrap, wrapped a, a dead person. A person would, would be bound or, or tied in that language in grave clothes. Both of these are images of, of, of Christ. Right? He's the, the bridegroom, right? The church is the bride and is bound to Christ because he sheds his blood for her, dies for her, lays his life down for her. He goes to the tomb bound in burial claws because he's led his life. Powerful, powerful symbology in this passage. Another thing that's, that's interesting here is this, this animal's untied. It's, it's released and then it's brought to Jesus to be used for his, his purpose and, and they put him on it, and they, he starts going down the Mount of Olives. Now, in, in the book of Ezekiel, this, that's a prophetic book, and it talks about um, how Ezekiel saw in a vision the, the glory of God, the Spirit of God, actually leaving the temple in Jerusalem and coming and standing on the Mount of Olives. It's a mountain just east of Jerusalem. The Spirit of God leaves the temple. Now, uh, this is just before the, the Babylonians sacked it. The Babylonians came in, uh, destroyed Jerusalem, hauled everybody off into slavery. The, the first temple is destroyed. The walls of Jerusalem destroyed. And Ezekiel sees God leaving the temple. And what do we see in Luke 17? God returning to the temple. Jesus, the Son of God, riding this donkey down the Mount of Olives, uh, the most powerful image, though, comes from uh, Zechariah 9.9, which says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This was written 500 years before Jesus did this. So his disciples are seeing this happen. They're seeing this unfold, and they're, they're putting the, their coats down on the ground in front of them. Again, this is a, a kingly reference we find in 2 Kings. But they're laying their coats down, and they begin to shout. What do they shout? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They know Zechariah 9.9. They know this is happening. This is coming true. The king that they've wanted and the king they've been waiting for is coming. They don't understand what he's going to do yet, but at least they got this part right. He is the king that they've been waiting for. They're also quoting Psalm 118, but they're rejoicing and they're praising God. They're glorifying God because of what he has, is doing here. And then this is, there's this beautiful part. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. It's really significant how loud this is. Um, to, to be uh, in a position where you're claiming somebody as king and you're putting them on a donkey and leading them into the capital, like um, this would, uh, was a powerful statement. And they're still ruled by Rome. To, to, to Rome, this would be insurrection. 
And how they treat insurrection, as we'll talk about here in a second, is violent and bloody. But they're not afraid. They're not afraid. They praise God anyway. Um, and so he, he, he rides uh, this, this animal down into um, uh, Jerusalem. Uh, then the Pharisees speak up. We can always count on them to try to ruin the day. Um, f- f- great thing about this, oh, this is the last time we're going to see the Pharisees mentioned by name. Um, that from here on out, it's just going to be religious leaders in general, and they're just going to join the cesspool. But we won't read about Pharisees in particular anymore. But they speak up to Jesus, and they say, you need to quiet your people down. You need to shut them up. They're committing blasphemy. They're calling you the Messiah. They're calling you the king. They can't do that. And Jesus' response is, is if I quiet them, the rocks are going to sing. You, you need to understand that, that inanimate created objects, if I shut them up, creation itself will sing. You don't understand what's happening here. That, that all of creation has been longing for this moment. All of the world and creation has been longing for this time where the king is going to come and he's going to make it right. Everything's been building up to this. You can't shut it down. You can't silence it and you can't stop it. So the king of righteousness comes riding an animal of peace into the city of peace. Look at verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that made for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. He rides into the city of peace. Jerusalem actually means foundation of peace. It was supposed to be the place where God and humanity came together and from that place, peace would surround the the, the globe. From, From that spot, peace would flow out from there the foundation of peace. Instead, it was a place that rejected and despised God. Um, Notice Jesus' attitude towards it. He sees Jerusalem, and here's the place uh, in which its inhabitants are going to falsely uh, accuse him. They're going to arrest him. They're going to try him. They're going to convict him. They're going to condemn him. They're going to execute him. These are the people that's going to do that to him, and so we see Jesus weep, but he's not weeping for himself. He's not weeping over his circumstances. He's not weeping over the plight that he's in. He's not weeping for himself. He's weeping for the city that's going to do it to him. He's weeping for his enemy. What we see um, here is there's this this formulaic um, prophetic oracle that Jesus says to Jerusalem. Um, It's seen in in a lot of places in the Old Testament where uh, prophets... Uh, bring a message of, of, of judgment. Like uh, some examples of that would be um, uh, uh, Isaiah 39, verse 6, Hosea 9, verse 7, Amos 4, 2, or Zechariah 14, 1. Um, but Jesus pronounces this, this prophetic oracle over Jerusalem. And there's three parts to these. The first is, is the address. Who's he talking to? Jesus says, you, Jerusalem, you, you didn't know that peace came to you. You, Jesus is speaking to, to Jerusalem like it's a person. 
like one person. And the address is, is you. Um, last week, we saw a, uh, a parable in which Jesus talked about a nobleman who goes away to get a kingdom and come back. Um, but it says this in the parable, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. This was Jerusalem's attitude towards Jesus. Summed up. We don't want you. Uh, Jesus said in, in Luke 13, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That just happened. People just said, blessed is he who came in the name of the Lord, comes in the name of the Lord. But it wasn't the people of Jerusalem, it was Jesus' disciples who said it. And you see the heart of Jesus towards this city. I wanted to surround you. I wanted to protect you. I wanted to hold you. I wanted to love you. But the indictment is this, is you rejected me. You don't want the king of salvation. You refuse the king of peace. Therefore, the result will be destruction. So you see the address, you see the indictment, and then there's the verdict, verse 43. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up barricades around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you. In AD 70, 40 years after Jesus said this, there was an insurrection in Jerusalem and Rome put it down. They sent a man named Titus who would become emperor and he surrounded the city and laid siege to it for over four months. And the people within began to starve to death to the point where they began to eat their own children. They set fire to the city and to the temple. And that intense heat from that fire caused all the gold in the temple to melt and liquid gold ran into the cracks between the stones of the foundation of the temple. And so when the fire was put out, Roman soldiers literally took crowbars and, and pried every stone apart to get after the gold. They literally left no stone sitting on top of another one. That's how complete and utter the destruction was. And that's what Jesus prophesied would happen. And he didn't do it because he was vindictive. And he didn't do it because he was vengeful, because of what Jerusalem would do to him. But you hear and you see that the heart of Jesus on display, he wept for this city. Well, the, the king of salvation rides not just into Jerusalem, but he rides to uh, the house of peace or the house of prayer. Look at verse 45. And he entered the temple and begin to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Um, in the other gospels, you'll find much lengthier um, passages of scripture about Jesus cleansing the temple. Um, much more descriptive passages than Luke gives. Um, keep in mind that uh, those other gospels primarily are, are often written to, to, to Jewish audiences. Luke is writing to a Gentile audience. So uh, when, when you read in the, the other gospels that Jesus is angry, his anger is targeted towards how the, the sacrificial system has been abused. And there's profiteering going on from the worship of, of God. Um, in Luke, Jesus isn't focused on that aspect so much as he's focused on the segregation aspect. 
The temple was organized in such a way that it was highly segregated. There was the inner holy of holies where one priest could go once a year, and then there was an outer sanctuary where the other priests could come and minister, and then there was another uh, court where Jewish men could go. But then there was a separate court for Jewish women, and then there's an outer court where, where Gentiles could be, but they couldn't go anywhere beyond that. It was a highly segregated place. And, and, and you hear in Jesus' words, this is supposed to be a house of prayer. Isaiah 56, 6 and 7. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. For all peoples. The fact that God chose one nation to reveal himself to wasn't that he just wanted to save that one nation. He wanted to use that nation to tell the rest of the world who he is and what he's like. He intended from the very beginning that the whole world should know him. His house was supposed to be a house of prayer. It was supposed to be a place where anybody who wanted to know God could come and find God. Instead, it was segregated. Second thing that Jesus says is, you made this a den of robbers. Now, this is less about stealing and it's more about violence. In those days, um, there were highway robbers who would lie in wait for somebody to come along down the road and uh, they, would, they would attack them and they would rob them and most often kill them. We saw that in the parable of the Good Samaritan. But, but these individuals would go and they would hide out in caves and, and this is where they would go to hide from justice, right? Hiding, these are, these are men of violence hiding in justice. This is what Jesus' accusation is. He's talking to the religious leaders. He, he's talking to, to, to the people who are in charge of the temple. He's talking about these people who think that they're righteous and they're pious. They think that they're really, really good people. And he's saying, you're men of violence and you're using this place to hide. You're men of violence and you're using this place to cover up your sin. You're not righteous, you're not just. In fact, I know you, I know what you do to the poor and the powerless. I know how you mistreat the widow and the orphan. I know what you do to the stranger and the outsider and the foreigner. The accusation is there. Jesus has come to the temple or this, the house of prayer as he calls it here, this house of peace in order to teach. Um, last part of Luke 19, verse 47. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. We move into this segment next, next week in, in chapter 20. Jesus begins to teach in the temple. You know, it's interesting, in, in Luke's gospel, Jesus hasn't been to the temple since he was 12 years old. In Luke's gospel, when Jesus is 12, he goes with his parents for Passover up to Jerusalem from Nazareth. 
And after the Passover is over, the family returns, but Jesus isn't with the group that they're traveling with. And they get a couple days journey outside of Jerusalem and they're, they're looking for Jesus and, and they realize they must have left him behind. And so they return to Jerusalem and they, and they begin to look for him all over the city and they find him in the temple. And, 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 and they're asking, what, what are you doing here? And they find him like learning. They find him participating in the conversation and, and everybody's amazed at his, his knowledge and his insight. And they ask him, what happened? And he says, why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? After 20 some years, Jesus has returned to teach. And he's gonna spend the next or the remaining days of his life teaching people about who God is and the actual plan. He's gonna be teaching about them what God is actually doing and what is really going on and how that changes their identity and how they should live because of it. He's gonna spend the remainder of his days teaching and that's what we're gonna be looking at in the next few weeks. The passage concludes. This was the calm before the storm. Starting next week, Jesus is going to start picking the fight that will lead to his execution. The calm before the storm. But here is this, this king of salvation to bring peace. And how does he do it? Now, human wisdom says build bigger bombs. Have more advanced technology. Have a greater number of fighting men have better airplanes, like build bigger and better weapons, more destructive. That's how humans solve the problem of war. That's how we go about making peace. And what has been the result of human wisdom? There is no peace on earth. And yet, what is God's response? You know, it's interesting how we thought that God would be like us the, the disciples believed that Jesus would come, he'd become king, and he would raise up an army and go and conquer the world. We thought that God would do war to make peace like we do. But that's not how he did it. Instead, he didn't come to raise an army, and he didn't come to, to put weapons in people's hands. He didn't come with power. He came with weakness. He came small, and he came vulnerable, and he came mortal and he put himself into the hands of violent men. And that's how God made peace. Through the blood of his son. Do you have peace with God? You will never find peace with other human beings until you have peace with God first. That's the relationship that has, has to be the first one. And he has done everything for you to have peace. You can't shed your own blood. It's not costly enough. His was. One man's blood of infinite, infinite value was paid so to secure infinite and eternal peace for all of us. Has that changed who you are? We're going to partake of communion now. And that the elements are in uh, the, the inside rows and on, on trays, and you can pass those now. As we partake of communion, be reminded, first of all, of what those elements symbolize. The bread is his body given for you and for me. A mortal body. God takes on flesh, and he puts himself in the hands of violent men in order to die. That cup symbolizes his blood. His blood of infinite, infinite value shed for you and I 
so that we could have peace with our creator. Now there's four questions that I ask you to ponder or meditate on as, as you prepare to take communion this morning. Here's the first one. Do you proclaim the king has come and glorify God because of it? We just saw the disciples. They see Jesus riding on this animal. They know prophecy is being fulfilled. This is the king they've been waiting for and they will not be silent about it. They will not be silent. The king has come and they will proclaim it and they're not going to fear Rome. Do you fear Rome? Rome being your coworker or that family member or that neighbor or the, the culture in which you live that is telling you you worship the wrong king. Keep your mouth shut. Do you proclaim him? Second question, do you weep for the people that Jesus weeps for? One commentator on this passage put it well. He said, perhaps there is something wrong with someone who claims to have the peace of Christ but never seems to have the tears of Christ. Jesus wept for his enemies. Do we? Third question. Are you living as a temple of God? You know, uh, that temple, it was destroyed in 70 AD. Before it was destroyed, the Spirit of God left it. On the day of Pentecost, the Spirit is sent to live in the heart of believers. If you are in Christ, then the Spirit of God is in you. The same glory that indwelt the temple of God now lives in you. Are you living like a temple of God? And there's two implications of this. The first one is this. Is there any part of you that you haven't allowed the Spirit of God access to? Any part of your fears, any part of your desires, any part of your heart that you say is off limits to God? Does he truly rule your heart? The second aspect of this, since he lives in you, are you a meeting ground for God and people. You're a portable temple. Like the days are long gone when people who need God will stumble into places like this. Very rarely, I think, will people come to buildings like this to encounter Jesus. But if you are the temple of God, they're more likely to encounter you out there. Are you the temple of God out there? Are, are you a person who, who brings God with you where you go and, and you provide the opportunity and the meeting ground for somebody in need of God, in need of the king of salvation, in need of this king of peace? Do you provide that meeting place? Because you're the temple. You're the temple. Last question. Do you know your identity and purpose? based on who Jesus is, based on what he's done for you? How does that change who you are and how you get to live? Does it actually change you? What is your purpose and identity? I struggle uh, with, with this. Maybe, maybe you do too. I think us, um, we want to be Revelation 19 people instead of Luke 19 people. Here's what I mean by that. In Revelation 19, we see Jesus this powerful warrior riding on a war horse and he's followed by powerful warriors riding on war horses. 
And that's what we want to be. We want to be valiant, courageous warriors for God. Now, that's going to happen. But that's not now. We're not living Revelation 19. We're, we're, we're living Luke 19. Jesus hasn't called us to pick up weapons and follow him into war. He's called us to pick up a cross and follow him to death. This is Luke 19. I, I, I'll be honest, I, 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 I struggle with the pressure to be some valiant, courageous warrior figure. Most of that pressure is pressure that I put on myself. But I wonder how many people uh, attend a church or want to be a part of a church who, who have somebody up front who is that kind of person who's seen as this, this valiant warrior individual who's week after week just dropping truth bombs on people. They want in a leader. And, and the reality is, I'm not that. I, I'm not the valiant warrior. I'm not even a horse of a valiant warrior. Know what I am? I'm a dumb talking donkey. That's what I am. When I look at Luke 19, the character, the, the, the thing that I identify with, it's the donkey. He has untied me. He has set me free from sin and death so that I might serve him. So that I might deliver him, deliver his message wherever he wants it to go. But I'm just a dumb talking donkey. I'm weak. And I think that's okay. Reminded of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He's recounting God's words to him. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. To be weak so that his power can be demonstrated. I'm okay with that most days. Where's your identity found? And where's your purpose I'm going to ask that those questions be put back up there. So take a moment before you, you partake of these elements and ponder these things. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you. You came to pay the penalty that we deserve to pay. You came to assuage the wrath of the Father. You stood between us and him and you absorbed it. You took what we deserve. The reality is we were bound to sin and death, but worse, we were bound to the wrath of God. And you untied us and you set us free. But help us to remember that you bound us to yourself and you bound us to your purpose and that we are meant to glorify God because of what you've done and we are meant to weep for those 
who you weep for. And we are meant to go and be living temples to the world that needs to hear and see you, to experience you. We are called to a purpose. Our identity is found in you. God, I pray this week that our weakness would be a powerful demonstration of you and your love. In Jesus' name, amen.